when I invited Pastor Julia to preach a few weeks ago, I said to her, here's the text I'd like you to consider, and I think it'll take you three weeks to preach this text. I said, but I don't want you to feel locked into that. If it takes you longer, that's fine. If it takes you shorter, that's fine. Just take the passage, pray about it, work it out. And, and she decided really it was four weeks, not three weeks. And so we're, we're changing the order a little bit. You had weeks one and two of Luke 6. I'm going to jump in with an introduction to Lent for a couple of weeks. And then you're going to get weeks three and four of Luke 6 a little later. So that's, that's the general plan for how we're moving forward. Uh, do you understand what equilibrium is? I mean, equilibrium is, it's balance, right? If, um, if you have a vacuum and you have a gas and you allow gas to enter the vacuum, at some point, the space inside the vacuum reaches an equilibrium. Okay, the, the gas distributes across the whole vacuum until it's of the same pressure the whole way through. When, when you're heating your house and the hot air is in the basement and you open the door to the cellar, the temperature reaches an equilibrium. The, the hot air rises, the cold air settles, and eventually it just starts to even out, right? It, it, it finds its balance, a middle point. And I want to talk a little bit about equilibrium and, and balance today. I'm wondering if you've experienced some of the things that I've experienced in the past year. I don't think that I have ever in the past been treated in the ways that I've been treated in the past year or so. I've been called rude, condescending, stupid, naive, and foolish. I've been accused of being a pawn of the government. Increasingly, interestingly, I've also been accused of being unpatriotic. I've received fiery and accusatory correspondence, some of which accuse me of not doing my job, and some stating that I'm not doing my job very well or doing it poorly. At least once I was accused of cheating people out of their money, I've been told that I'm probably a racist. I'm not saying any of this to get sympathy from you. Who knows? I probably deserve some of the comments. I'm saying this because I expect that you have experienced some of these very same things. And if your experience is like mine, then maybe your response has been like mine. I'm hoping you've done better than me because I need to confess what the treatment has done to me. If I'm candid, there are some people I no longer want to see. When I speak with my wife, there are situations and sometimes people I complain about. The conversation goes something like this. How dare they say that about me? Don't they know what I've been doing behind the scenes to try to keep the peace, to remain impartial, to seek to do what is wise and best? There are people who have hurt me in even deeper ways. 
people whom I have invested great stores of energy in, who have simply just disappeared without a word, with no explanation from my life. And I feel and, and say to myself internally, I deserve better treatment than that. I've invested a great deal. I, you probably understand the feeling as well. You have likely lost a few friends in the past 18 months. Might have been your fault, might have been their fault, might have been no one's fault. But the pain is real, and the sense of loss, or, or maybe even the sense of betrayal, has the potential to warp our spirit and lead us on the path of judging and accusing and blaming. And there's a real danger here. Human instincts tell us to protect ourselves from enemies and attacks. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm saying that self-protection mentally can be a gateway experience to aggressive and offensive behavior on our part. And so Jesus says to us, you heard in the last two weeks, turn the other cheek. Don't strike back. And here's the problem. I want to strike back. Not physically. I need to be larger like Chima to do that. Not physically do I want to strike back, but certainly verbally, certainly emotionally. At a minimum, I want to exonerate myself. I want to set the record straight. I want to exact a pound of flesh for the nasty thing that was done to me. And here's the problem. Jesus is saying, Jesus is teaching this one thing and I want to do this other thing. That's, that's the problem. And I have a choice. I can either obey, Jesus is teaching. I can disobey, Jesus is teaching. Or I can try to wrangle some kind of compromise, try to reach some type of internal equilibrium. There are times when the idea of obeying the teaching of Jesus just seems far too radical to entertain. I mean, Jesus can't possibly mean that I do that. This is asking too much. I mean, loving enemies? Who loves enemies? That's a step too far. Still, I recognize it is Jesus saying this after all. And so rather than outwardly disobeying or openly disobeying, I, I try to work up a compromise in myself. I won't act on the love I'm supposed to have. I will simply refrain from injuring them. I won't, I won't curse them, but I won't pray for them either. That sounds like a good middle ground to me. And I've determined my course of action based on what I think is reasonable to me. That's my compromise. And that is an incredibly dangerous place to stand. Or at least that's what Isaiah says. 
Listen to the opening words of Isaiah 58. This is the report. Don't miss this. This is really critical. When Isaiah is speaking in 58, he is speaking to a people who are actively seeking God. Don't miss that. If you miss that, none of the rest of this makes sense. It probably doesn't apply to us otherwise. Isaiah 58. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways. As if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinances of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Do you hear what Isaiah is saying? These people are seeking me. And seeking God is the right thing to do. This is a great place to be. We know that the people who seek God find God. And these people are doing the very same things that we're proposing to do during this season of Lent in the weeks ahead. They, like us, are seeking God. But they have a question. The question comes up in the text. Lord, why aren't you responding to our petitions? Why do you take no notice of our seeking? We have prayed. We've humbled ourselves. We've confessed. Why isn't our land healed the way you promise in 2 Chronicles 7? What's this about? What does it say in verse 3 of the text? Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? The good news is that God does answer those who seek him. The bad news it God, is that God tells them the truth about their level of compromise. And this is what he has to say in answer to their question. Lord, no, look, the Lord speaking, look, you serve your own interests on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such a fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to live in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? When I'm reading that, I'm thinking, but God, I thought that's exactly what you wanted me to do. I thought you wanted me to humble myself. I, wanted, I thought you wanted me to, to seek you, to acknowledge that I'm sinful, to, to, to do these religious things so that you would know I care about you. This kind of fasting, God says, this pretending to be righteous doesn't mean anything as long as you are still observing your own choice of religious practices and worshiping according to your own compromise rather than obeying God in the way he instructs us to treat others. These are the things I really care about, he says in the text. Let me read the rest of the passage to you. These are the things I really care about. You want to sit in sackcloth and ashes. You want to be silent. You want to meditate. You want to read the word. And pretend because you're doing the things that are easy for you to do, that you're doing the will of God in the world. This, he says, is what I care about. 
Is not this the fast I choose? This is verse 6, Isaiah 58. To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. Listen to these next words. So convicting. If you remove the yoke from among you, if you remove the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruin shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. If you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways, serving your own interests or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. I will feed you the heritage of your ancestor Jacob for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I've been stuck here all week in Isaiah 58. The promises of God seem linked to my obedience in terms that are not unfamiliar. We've heard this list of concerns before. Justice and liberty, addressing the needs of the poor and the indigent, caring for the needs of our own families. I mean, we struggle in some of these areas, but we don't argue that they're important. We acknowledge that they are important, Sometimes we debate just how important and how much we're going to actually do in these areas. But after all that conversation is over, Isaiah gets really personal. Verse 9, part B, remove the yoke from among you. You don't hear me quote John Calvin often, but listen now. This is what John Calvin has to say about this passage. The yoke that exists among us is all the annoyances that we offer to the poor. All the annoyances we offer the poor. I served as a bank teller when I was in seminary. And my boss essentially said to me, if the person has this much money in their account, do whatever you want, they want you to do. But if they have like no money, don't take any risks, don't help them, charge them all the overage fees. And I'm thinking, that is mistreatment of the poor. It's probably why I didn't last as a bank teller very long. Ways we annoy the poor or exclude the poor from among us, perhaps by, by making the price of admission to our circles too high, have to dress a certain way to be with us, need certain possessions to be in style or fashionable, 
No access to our bank without a minimum balance. No food from the food bank unless you can provide certain documentation. No fellowship with us unless you can reciprocate and you smell good. Verse 9b again. Remove from you the pointing of the finger. What's that? Isn't that singling out people for ridicule or judgment? Look at that. Can you believe that? How dare they come dressed like that? How dare you ask me for that? Pointing the finger is more than just observing and condemning a certain behavior or action or or personality trait. Pointing the finger is an attempt to make public my opinion of someone else. And it is an attempt to gain support for my opinion. That's what we do when we're pointing the finger, right? Let's create a clique to condemn this person for some irritation or social infraction or insufficiency. It often comes to my ear in this way. You know, I'm not the only person who thinks this way. You've heard that? That tells me that there has been a gossip circle already in motion and folks are talking together, gaining support for their judgment. Now, how does that advance the peace of Christ? Now, now I'll be candid. I'm not opposed to all gossip circles. The, The gossip circle that talks about how we need to address or stand with someone who's in a difficult and perhaps sensitive, discreet, position and and the positive thing we can do to support and encourage. If you want to have that gossip circle, you go for it. When the body of Christ sensibly comes together and helps folks. If you want to raise some money to help somebody, but you know a GoFundMe page on Facebook is a bad idea in this particular case, you go for it. Raise the money, help them out. But if you're trying to get some third grader kicked out of class for bad hygiene, well, that kind of gossip circle smells worse than any third grader I've ever encountered. 9b says, Remove from you the evil speaking, the malicious talk. Well, we know better than to speak evil of one another, right? If that's the case, and and we do know this, right? Then we are not always acting in ways that are consistent with our knowledge. I spent one summer during my college career as a gardener, a groundskeeper at the Reading Hospital and Medical Center in Pennsylvania. The crew that I was assigned to work with, the permanent crew that I was assigned to work with, was the most foul-mouthed and perverse group of men I've ever met in my life. I was frequently embarrassed 
I couldn't laugh at their jokes. I couldn't interact with them. And it was trying to have to do it. It was, it was a chore for me. And add on top of that, the job wasn't always pleasant. I mean, I was outside doing ground. You think that would be great. But if you're pulling really large thistles from the borders of parking lots in the summer, if it's 95 outside, the asphalt's going to be 110. And the thistles go into your hands when you pull them up, even with thick gloves. And, and one day, near the end of the summer, I reached to pull a thistle and got speared well in the hand. And one of their words came out of my mouth. And I was horrified. And I thought to myself, how, how does this happen? But I learned something. I learned that if you are surrounded with dirt, sooner or later, some of it will rub off on you. And if we're candid, we have been immersed in dirt Critical, unthinking, aggressive language everywhere. We are in danger due to our immersion in the verbal violence that surrounds us. We are in danger because of the Christian voices that are not reflecting Christian values. We are in danger due to the level of compromise that is around us everywhere. We are in danger. And that is why we need to observe Lent this year. Lent is a time of repentance, of seeking, of listening, of recalibrating. It can't stop there. This passage is making very clear. We've been so immersed in the grime of the culture that we might not even know the level of compromise that we have accepted. Like Israel, it's possible that we're seeking God and wondering why we're not hearing anything, why things feel strained. And it may be that compromise, which maybe in marriage is a good thing, but compromise is not always healthy. It is not always good. And compromise is not healthy for the children of God when the thing being compromised is obedience to the voice of the Holy Spirit. You say, but pastor, isn't compromise sort of the way forward? Well, you remember back in 1820, the Missouri Compromise, the compromise that admits Maine into the United States at the price of making Missouri a slave state? How can any part of that be good, right? How can you accept any part of wrong and think that's the way forward? How can you accept any part of disobedience to the voice of the Holy Spirit and think that that's going to be okay? When we compromise, when we decide how much of the teaching of Jesus will obey, 
what's reasonable to us. What we've essentially done is this. We have created our own religion. It's no longer the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel according to me. And I've decided that eh, this part is good, that part not so good. This is reasonable. This is who I will be. And you know what Paul has to say about people who create any gospel other than the true gospel of Jesus Christ? It's no gospel at all. There's no good news in that at all. If we're going to be sons and daughters of the king, then we must obey him. And we must sit before him until we know that we are obeying him. And we must invite him to reprove us, to test us, to refine us. Ash Wednesday, the sacred assembly to which I'm summoning you, marks the beginning of a special time of seeking. This is my prayer for us. Most merciful God, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We confess that we have sinned against you by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we need your spirit to come and speak your truth to us. If there are areas of compromise in our lives, tell us the truth about it. And enable us, Lord, to humbly repent. Forgive us, Lord. It is our desire to be your children and to live in ways that can reflect your glory. It is our desire, Lord, to bear your name well as Christian. It is our desire, Lord, to witness to the world that you are the Prince of Peace and the King of Love. Help us, we pray. We're going to sing a song in closing, a prayer. And, um, While we're singing that song, if you um, 
would like to pray at the altar, you're welcome to pray. Pray in your seat. Invite the Spirit to speak to you. There is a paper in the lobby, in the tables, for you to write out your prayers for Lent. I encourage you in the days between now and Wednesday to find time to sit with your family or friends and and write out your prayer requests. Write out your desires for yourself during Lent. It may be an exercise in confession. I, I don't know what it will be for you. But then bring those prayers Wednesday and bring them back to this altar and pray them to the Father at his altar here. And then join us in sealing those prayers under the altar so that we can be thinking through these next weeks about what the Spirit might say to us and what he might be wanting us to do and where he might be taking us. May God be merciful to us. May God renew us by the power of his Holy Spirit. May the Father cause his church to hunger for his ways. And may the Lord accomplish through us what is pleasing to him and what will bring glory to his name now and always. Amen.